And welcome into the Most Accurate Podcast. I'm Anthony Stalter. Alongside me, as always, is 444.com Senior Editor John Paulson. How are we doing today, John? Anthony, I'm doing pretty good. I bet you're doing pretty good after the Falcons uh, went into L.A. and uh, beat the Rams. Thrilled. I'm thrilled for three reasons. Obviously, one being the Falcons. I'm a huge Falcon fan. As regular listeners know, I've been a Falcon fan since... Uh, Probably the 1991 team, and I was I was like 10 years old at the time. I fell in love with Deion Sanders. And um, outside of recently, they hadn't had a lot of success, so it, it's always good to see them win a playoff game. The second reason, though, is that they played the Rams, and there's a lot of people. I'm, I'm based yeah. in St. Louis. I do St. Louis radio, as you know, John, and a lot of people were were hoping that the Rams – I mean, you can call you can call fans, St. Louis, St. Louis football fans bitter all you want, but that was, that was, that was a rough deal when they went back to L.A., uh, so for the Falcons to beat the Rams, I think was kind of special, and and you know what they did it in convincing fashion. So it was kind of those three things that was it was pretty fun to watch last weekend in the wild card round. And meanwhile, my Packers are uh, you know Mike McCarthy has decided that uh, all the problems they had this year were not his under his purview. He didn't fire himself; he fired everybody else. Uh, and uh, I, I do like they're making changes in the coaching staff, um, but they. Uh, they promoted the, the I forget the guy's name the the GM but they they lost Elliot Wolf and uh, Dorsey so there's some brain drain in Green Bay I hope it all works out but uh, you know I'm not super optimistic I guess the only thing you can say there is that now that Mike McCarthy got rid of everybody there is no more scapegoat so this yeah. is this is kind of it for him but I I feel your pain because I know you you've wanted I know you have felt that Mike McCarthy is a tad overrated over the years. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he. Uh, I just like whenever he's questioned in a in a press conference, he just takes such umbrage uh, that anyone will question his decision making. And uh, I think he's been living off that one Super Bowl win for for quite a while now. Yeah, I don't blame you. Uh, tell tell us about the music, and then we'll explain why we're back for one one last podcast for the 2017-2018 fantasy season. Yeah, this is a kind of a deep cut from the '80s. Uh, the band's called Opus. They're from Austria. And the name of the track is Live is Life. If you look on Spotify, I'm using the one uh, digitally remastered uh, single version of that uh, track. They re-recorded it a few times over the years. But uh, it was a minor hit in the United States, big hit over in Europe. And uh, I think it's pretty catchy. So uh, check it out. All right. The reason why we're doing one last fantasy podcast here, we're kind of we're going to do a season recap, but with a twist. I want to ask John what he learned from the fantasy season or what we learned as fantasy players and, and why certain uh, performers helped owners win their leagues this year. Maybe John was higher on a player than, than other uh, experts, or maybe he was lower and just kind of explain how the fantasy season unfolded. So let's talk first uh, about the running back position and let's, let's start off with Todd Gurley. He was a fantasy bus last year. A lot of a lot of people were picking him either first or second in their their, their leagues, and he was just he, he let's call it he we'll call it what it was. He was he was a bust. He finished as the RB one with a forty two PPR point average over the second running back, the RB two, which is Le'Veon Bell. He was drafted as the number ten RB in the middle of the second round after finishing as the RB fifteen last year. He killed it in the fantasy playoffs. I lost two two games in two separate leagues because I faced Todd Gurley. In fact, 123.1 PPR fantasy points. It was the most combined combined points from week 14 to week 16 in the history of the league. LaDainian Tomlinson was second with 115 points per, per um, uh, PPR in 2003, and Jamal Charles was third in 2013 
with 114.7. So how did Todd Gurley happen, John? Well, the funny thing about Gurley, looking back on, on his summer and his, la- you know, his 2016 season, uh, you know, heading into the draft, it was all just sort of murky as to, you know, there were people arguing that Todd Gurley was not good. Uh, I distinctly remember that on Twitter saying that he's just not a good runner. Uh, I thought he was pretty talented given his rookie season and that, you know, the problems uh, in, in, in the, with the Rams uh, as a sophomore had a lot more to do with Jeff Fisher and the offensive scheme they were running there, uh, the coaching that they were getting, the offensive line. Uh, they didn't make a whole lot of changes uh, to the offensive line. Uh, I'll get into that in a second, but just with Gurley, you know, even though he had the huge fancy playoff run, he was already the number one running back through week 13. So it wasn't like this huge fancy playoff was a big, was what pushed him over the top to be the number one running back. He was already the number one running back heading into week 14. Uh, so that tells you something about uh, his season. Uh, the arrival Sean McVay obviously is, is should, you know, gets a lot of the credit. Uh, for the turnaround uh, with this offense, especially. Um, he wanted to get Gurley more involved in the passing game. And I went back to look at some of the blurbs about Gurley in the offseason to try to see if there was, you know, we should be able to read the tea leaves on this. Uh, they initially didn't think that he was going to have a huge role in the passing game. Um, but then as the summer wore on, uh, McVeigh was talking uh, raving about his ability in the passing game. So they want to get him more options in the passing game. And whenever you're looking at a running back, especially in the first two rounds, first three rounds, uh, you don't want a guy who's just a runner and doesn't do anything in the passing game because if the running game is not going in that particular game, you're going to end up with a very low score uh, because they're not able to get him the ball uh, in space in the passing game to, to get some production out of him. Um, McVeigh increased that usage in the passing game, 87 targets in 2017. He only had 58 targets the year before, so that's a big jump. Uh, in 2016, 21% of his standard fantasy points, 38% of his PPR fantasy points came from the passing game. But in 2017, those numbers rose to 36% and 46% respectively. So a big jump there. If you're just looking at raw fantasy points, Gurley scored 40 PPR fantasy points as a rookie, 76 in his second year, and then 179 last year. So a giant you know, 100-point jump uh, in 2017 in terms of total fantasy points. Some of this had to do with Benny Cunningham uh, exiting. Uh, Jeff Fisher and company, you know, insisted on using Cunningham as their their pass catching back in 2016. Uh, the Rams did worry me a little bit when they signed Lance Dunbar to sort of fill that role uh, this year or you know last summer. Uh, but he was out most of the year with a knee injury. Never really uh, became part of the offense, and Gurley took over that role, um, and that allowed him to have this monster season. And then you look at the running game specifically, you know, I was concerned that they didn't do enough at the, along the front offensive line uh, in order to improve the running game, but they signed 36 year old Andrew Whitworth at left tackle. They signed 32 year old John Sullivan at center. Both players were uh, 11th rated at their position uh, by pro football focus. So they both got, they both turned in really good seasons. Uh, the other Offensive lineman Rob Rob Havenstein was 26. Roger Scaffold, the guard, was uh, seventh. Uh, Jamin Brown was 37th. But all these guys were better at run blocking than they were at pass blocking. So the the running game really took off 
due to the addition of Whitworth and Sullivan, and then just the line kind of coming together. They went from 29th in adjusted line yards at fantasy football. I'm sorry, football outsiders. They went from 29th in uh, 2016 to third last year in 2017. So big jump there. And I think looking ahead with Gurley, uh, I mean, he's my top pick uh, heading into 2018. I think it's pretty close between him and Le'Veon Bell. Uh, but I really don't see anything changing there. McVay should continue to improve the offense. Uh, the passing game is obviously a lot better. Robert Woods and Sammy Watkins help there. We'll see if Watkins resigns because um, I think that passing game opened up things for Gurley in the running game. Um, we'll have to keep an eye on the offensive line uh, since some of these guys are older. Uh, the Rams did not take any offensive linemen in the draft last year, so I wonder how deep they are at that position. And, you know, Gurley did not have a really easy schedule uh, from an adjusted fantasy points allowed standpoint. He had the 11th toughest schedule for running backs, so there's room for improvement there, although uh, the Rams will be seeing a tougher schedule overall since they uh, won the division. Yeah, John, uh, just a couple of notes uh, there. I think I think the one thing that you hit on, I think one, obviously, is the usage from Todd Gurley getting more involved in the passing game. Sean McVay had a huge impact on that. They used him in a variety of ways. In fact, um, that's one of the reasons I, I don't think that they're they're going on uh, in, the, in the playoffs is because Todd Gurley was basically shut down as a pass catcher by Deion Jones and that, that Falcons defense. So that was a huge part of Sean McVay's offense. And uh, one thing that Jeff Fisher and his previous offense coordinators just couldn't figure out how to use Todd Gurley uh, in the passing game. Either they, they refused to or they weren't creative enough, maybe the, maybe you know, a combination of the two. But the other factor there that you brought up was the offensive line. Signing Andrew Whitworth was huge. They had a mega draft bust named Greg Robinson, who was the number two overall pick a couple of years ago. He wound up in Detroit, and then the Lions released him halfway through the season. He was awful, and he was protecting Jared Goff and the quarterback's blindside in uh, St. Louis and L.A. over the last couple of years. So that that was big. I just wonder, both Andrew Whitworth and John Sullivan, the, the two additions that you mentioned, they're, they're aging now. So I do wonder if they make a, a commitment in the draft to, to get younger and better along that offensive line because you got everything starts there. It starts in the trenches. Let's move on to Alvin Kamara now. He was outstanding. You brought up Gurley and how they used him in the passing game. Well, there there perhaps was um, no better example of of that too in in this in the NFC with Alvin Kamara. The rookie finished as RB three in PPR and RB four in standard after being drafted as the forty fifth running back off the board in the eleventh round in PPR formats. He was going well. Uh, he was going well after Mark Mark Ingram, who went in the fifth round, as well as Adrian Peterson, who don't don't forget started off in New Orleans before he wound up in Arizona. He went in the sixth round this year. Uh, Kamara had a solid week 15 and week 16 in the fantasy playoffs. It's 36.9 fantasy points, 20th most among all players, 14th most among non-quarterbacks, and was well on his way to a big game against the Falcons in week 14, but suffered a concussion on the first drive. How did Alvin Kamara happen? Yeah, this was uh, a lot to do with uh, the Adrian Peterson signing, which really depressed Kamara's role uh, in the in the in the summer, or at least his projected role. Uh, th- but looking back on this, uh, they signed Peterson in March or whatever, and then drafted Kamara in, in April. And they didn't just draft Kamara; they traded up uh, and took him in the third round, early third round, uh, after signing Peterson, which should have been, you know, this is something that I didn't. Uh, you know, give enough uh, credence to uh, didn't deem this important enough that uh, even though they signed Peterson, they went out and went and got Kamara. And I, you know, I 
I, mean, I did realize that they traded up for him. I kind of thought it was more of a future, you know, Peterson's not, uh, wasn't going to be with the team for three or four years. So I figured it was okay. We're going to, we're, we're shoring up the running back position. Uh, but, you know, you get into camp, Larry Holder, beat writer, uh, New Orleans beat writer, uh, predicted the Reggie Bush, Darren Sproles role. Um, and that would be fine. If it was just him and Ingram, then I would have had Kamara ranked sixth, seventh round or, or thereabouts in PPR formats, maybe even higher if he was having a good summer. But it was behind, you know, this role was predicted behind Ingram and Peterson. Uh, so that was a little bit of a concern in terms of how many touches can he actually get. Uh, Sean Payton did not dismiss a Marshall Falk, if you remember this, Marshall Falk comparison in camp uh, with, with Kamara. So that should have been another indicator that uh, Payton obviously really liked him uh, and liked his role. And then the first three weeks of the season, it kind of sh- you know shook out the way we, we were expecting, but Peterson just wasn't very productive. Um, I think they decided to trade Peterson before week four. Uh, Peterson averaged 8.3 touches the first three weeks, and he only had four carries in week four. Kamara, on the other hand, averaged 6.7 touches in the first three weeks, and then he saw 15 touches in week four. Uh, and then from week four on, he averaged 14 touches for 109 yards and 0.92 touchdowns per game. That's 22 uh, fantasy points per game, PPR formats. He was already the RB3 on average in PPR, um, but that 22.0 is a lot higher than his uh, full season average of 19.6. It gets him a lot closer to Le'Veon Bell. So looking ahead with Kamara, they have a great offensive line there. They were top two in adjusted line yards the last two seasons in New Orleans. Uh, this is a this is a great situation for him. It looks like Ingram will be back. He did have sort of an out clause uh, in his um, in his contract. Uh, he needed to be All Pro uh, in 2017 or uh, Pro Bowl twice from 2015 to 2017. I think he only got one Pro Bowl in that span and did not get All Pro in 2017. So I think he's gonna be back, Ingram, in 2018. And then you're looking at you know. Uh, two guys that are going to be, you know, ranked in the top 15 every week, uh, given given the production of this offense and how they've sort of changed to a uh, a run heavy offense under Drew Brees and, and Sean Payton uh, from the pass heavy offense that we've seen in the last few years. So I think he's still uh, Kamara is is a bona fide top seven pick, top six pick in PPR. Uh, I might even have him in my top five uh, heading into next year. He's just a, a really really productive player and a great offense. Yeah, it was interesting too. I mean, you follow his his college career, and he started off with a, at Alabama. He didn't feel like he was going to get enough carries, so he goes to Tennessee, and he winds up being at, at the very I don't want to call him a backup because they did use both backs there at Tennessee, but um, you know he wasn't even the guy there. He slips into the middle rounds, and Sean Payton absolutely loved him. He went up and got him in the third round, and um, that kind of made the Adrian Peterson signing even more questionable. But regardless, Payton knew and the Saints knew that they had they made a small mistake with AP so they trade him and Kamara became a star and it will, it will be interesting on Sunday when the Saints travel up to Minnesota you know Carolina dared they stopped Kamara they stopped that running game they dared Drew Brees to beat him and it was Drew it was vintage Drew Brees last last Sunday it will be interesting to see if he can accomplish the same same feat against that Minnesota defense if that winds up being the case 
in the divisional round. Uh, all right, let's talk about Kareem Hunt. He finished as the RB4 after being drafted to RB15 in the third round after Spencer Ware was lost for the season with a knee injury. That happened right before the season started. It was a tale of three seasons for Hunt, who was the RB2 through the first seven weeks. He gained at least 109 total yards in each and every game during that span. Then from week eight through week 13, he failed to crack the 80 total Marty. 80 total yard mark and couldn't find the end zone in a a single time in that span. He was the RB 38 during that stretch. And people said that he hit the rookie wall. Then from week 14 through week 16, he gained at least 106 total yards and found the end zone at least once in each game. He was the RB three during the fantasy playoffs with 20.6 plus in three straight games. So how did Kareem Hunt happen and what was the deal with the, the, his midseason swoon let's talk uh, to, to talk to kind of bring us through from a fantasy perspective his three seasons John yeah and this was uh, one of those preseason things that happened we we liked uh, Spencer Ware I think he would have had a huge season if he had stayed healthy but he you know was out for the year uh, ACL um, so Hunt was handed the keys and then you get into the late drafts I was hoping we would pick him up in our uh, fantasy football players championship uh, team in the late third round, but he went at the two, three turn. So obviously the buzz got really hot on him really quickly. um, And he would have been a fantastic pick anywhere there uh, at that point in the draft. So uh, it all paid off, although there was that swoon in the middle and, you know, going back and looking at it, it's 5.78 yards per carry in that first, uh, you know, first seven weeks, 3.09 yards per carry from week eight to week 13, and then 4.64 yards per carry uh, in the fantasy playoffs. And he actually had an easy schedule uh, during uh, that swoon in the middle of the season. So it's a little strange. Uh, I went back and looked at the offensive line. There was a guard, uh, Laurent DuVernay, Tardif, if they could make the names a little more difficult for me to pronounce, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> uh, he did miss he did miss a few games, week five through week eight, uh, which did seem to impact Hunt's yards per carry during that span, 3.35 yards per carry. So uh, he was able to make it up fantasy-wise in the passing game, but he didn't get the end zone. Uh, so that was start the start of the swoon. But then, you know, this, this guard was back, and they should have, have been more productive uh, in the middle of the season. And that, I think that's what sort of led to the – the whole offense sort of took a dip. And then before week 13, Andy Reid handed over play calling duties to Matt Nagy uh, and and Nagy just fed Hunt like seriously during the fantasy playoffs. He had 30.7 touches per game from week 14 to week 16. And that's what led to that great, uh, it wasn't even all that efficient. I mean, it was pretty efficient, 4.64 yards per carry, but um, he was getting a huge workload. And that was, was leading to most of that fantasy production. Now with, with Nagy in Chicago, uh, we have to kind of monitor the the play calling duties. Probably Reed takes him back over unless he uh, finds an offensive coordinator that he trusts to, to handle him. I, I would expect Reed to be calling plays again. If 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 he's not giving this type of workload to to Hunt, he doesn't need to be 30.7 touches, um, but he needs to be seeing twenty to twenty five a game. I think. Uh, but I think he's a he's a first round pick again. I, I think I put Kamara ahead of him just because Kamara's role is. And workload is pretty well defined. He's so efficient in that offense. I think I put Hunt uh, just after him in the in the top seven. John, this wasn't on our rundown, but I'd, I'd love to get your take on the Alabama quarterback that that wanted uh, for for Bama on Monday night. If you could just say his name a couple of times, you good with that? It's uh, it's uh, Tua, right? Yeah, Tua. <laughs> yeah. We just call him Tua. 
Tua. Uh, let, let's talk about a couple of quarterbacks that surprisingly finished in the top 10. We'll start off with Carson Wentz. You know, he missed the last three games of the season uh, due to that ACL injury, but he still finished six in total fantasy points at the position. He was on pace for 338 fantasy points, which would have been good enough for third in every season since 2013. So how did Carson Wentz happen? This is a uh, this is my keeper league quarterback, so I have to decide if I want to keep him. It's we have a four team or four player keeper league, and it's six points per passing touchdown. So this is uh, like looking at his long term profile. I have to decide. I did cut Drew Brees in this league once, and it just came back to bite me. So I'm not going to. Um, I don't think I'm going to make that mistake again. I think I'm going to keep Wentz, even though he's got the injury. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> quarterbacks, uh, you know, rookie quarterbacks who struggle in their rookie years typically see uh, good growth as, as sophomores if they remain the starter. And I looked, I looked last summer and there was 10 rookie quarterbacks since the year 2000 that started 15 plus games as rookies and as sophomores. Uh, the four quarterbacks who averaged more than 16 fantasy points per game as rookies saw an average decline of 5.9% in their points per game in their second season. Uh, the six that scored less than 16 as rookies and actually it's less than 13 as it worked out, they saw an average increase of 30.5% in their sophomore points per game. Uh, so rookies who struggle and continue to start tend to do quite a bit better. They have obviously more room to grow. Rookies who do very well as, uh, as starters tend to decline a little bit in their second season. And this held true for Dak Prescott, who went from 17.9 fantasy points to 16.3. Wentz went from 13.1 as a rookie to 21.1 as a sophomore. And then Jared Goff, uh, 6.6 as a rookie. Terrible. Uh, thanks thanks a lot for that, <laughs> uh, Jeff Fisher. But uh, 6.6 to 17.0 as a sophomore under McVay. So even though Wentz and Goff didn't really qualify for the study because their game started uh, this year for Wentz and last year for Goff, it still held true when you look at their points per game. So uh, that's something to keep in mind when a rookie quarterback struggles and see how they do the following year. Mitch Trubisky sort of falls in that category uh, for next year. We'll, so we'll see how that goes. I think for Wentz, the addition of Alshon Jeffrey, Torrey Smith, that really helped him. Uh, Nelson Aguilar uh, emerged and replaced uh, Jordan Matthews. And then obviously Zach Ertz was was terrific uh, for him. So the weapons went from pretty substandard to one of the best in the league uh, in terms of the receiving course. And right now he's, he, you know, Wentz is the fifth quarterback off the board in early drafts, which is pretty aggressive considering he's got the ACL injury and he was injured late. Uh, it's going to have to closely monitor his progress to see if he's even ready uh, for training camp or for the start of the season next year, because it's no guarantee. It's usually a nine month uh, in, uh, injury recovery. So he should be okay, but we'll, we'll have to continue to continue to monitor his progress this summer. Let's move on to Alex Smith. We just got done talking about his teammate, Kareem Hunt. So let's talk about Smith, who was uh, who has been a use, useful option for quarterback streamers over the years. But prior to 2017, his best fantasy season was in 2013 when he finishes the QB 13. So um, that, that would have been fine for streaming, but certainly for a season-long year, even in deeper leagues, he wasn't, he wasn't that great. Last year, he finishes the QB 3, setting career highs in yards, touchdowns, interception percentage, yards per attempt, and quarterback rating while also adding his third highest rushing total of 355 yards. So how did Alex Smith version 2.0 happen, John? I know you've been uh, a big Alex Smith fan over the years fantasy-wise. Yeah, I always liked him from a value standpoint. He's 
available in the 15th round or whatever, and you end up getting top 15 production out of them. Uh, he's particularly useful as part of a committee. Um, but this year it was, it was kind of fun to watch him play a different style of quarterback. I mean, he went from being a dink and dunk, extremely safe uh, thrower to uh, having a, a much bigger willingness to throw the deep ball. Uh, you look at player profiler, uh, he averaged 4.5 deep ball or deep ball attempts. Those are attempts 20 yards or longer. He averaged 4.5 uh, per game. It was the 10th highest average in the league. So much, much higher than what he was at prior 3.1 in 2016, 2.3 in 2015. Uh, those were near the bottom of the league uh, in deep ball attempts. His, not only did he, his volume increase in terms of the deep ball, his completion percentage was a lot higher, 48.5% which was the second highest uh, completion percentage on deep balls after Drew Brees. Uh, this was up from 35% in 2015, 35% again in 2016. Uh, and this, I think, had a lot to do with the emergence of Tyree Kill, whose speed, you know, his ability to run behind the defense and open up big windows for, for uh, Smith to throw to uh, helped uh, Smith not only in a completion percentage, but just in his confidence in throwing the ball, throwing the ball deep. And I, um, I'm kind of surprised by the rumors uh, that the Chiefs are thinking about trading him. Uh, he, he's a mobile quarterback, able you know, has ability to run the ball. He's coming off a 26 touchdown, five interception, 4,000 plus yard season. Uh, took the Chiefs to the to the playoffs, and they're talking about uh, you know trading him away uh, so they can give their uh, starting uh, spot to uh, Mahomes, a, kind of an unproven sophomore quarterback. So. We'll see what happens. A very interesting offseason for Alex Smith and the Chiefs, whether or not they make this make this decision. Do you think that they should should trade Smith or uh, keep him for another year? I do, and it has more to do with the fact that they they invested in Patrick Mahomes, less to do about Smith. I, th- I think Smith is a quality quarterback. I think he's he's shown that he can certainly uh, get you the playoffs because he protects the football, and he 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 showed this year that he's not not necessarily just a game manager. I mean when. When the Chiefs went through their slump, everybody had a slump, and the offensive line was banged up, and Andy Reid even turned over the, the play-calling duties to Matt Nagy. It, it wasn't just Smith. But, look, you, you had traded up for Patrick Mahomes. You, you, you had already made the decision that Alex Smith wasn't going to be the guy long-term. So now that Patrick Mahomes was in Andy Reid's system for a full year, you only get these guys for four years and then you have to make a, a move. Then you have to make a decision on the, on, on whether or not to pick up the option for these first round guys. So um, I would, I would make the the move to Mahomes and I would jumpstart it now. I think, I think the chiefs as a team are in a spot where they don't need a rebuild, but they need a reboot and Smith still has value. So you could probably flip him for maybe a second round pick. Um, and recoup some of the some of the picks that you lost from Mahomes. That's kind of where I'm at on that. It's less again. It's less to do about Alex Smith. Yeah, and he's signed through 2018 and is free agent in 2019. So if they want to get something for him, uh, they would have to do so now. Yeah, makes it it's it's a good football move, I think, at this point. All right, let's talk about the wide receiver position in PPR formats. Ten of the t- top 12 receivers were drafted in the first four rounds and were among the top 23 receivers drafted. The two exceptions were Adam Thielen and Marvin Jones. Let's start off with Thielen. He finished as the wide receiver eight in PPR and wide receiver 11 in standard. 
despite a very poor week 15 and week 16. So he helped fantasy teams make the playoffs, but didn't contribute much once they got there. He was drafted in the seventh and th- seventh uh, through ninth rounds, depending on the ADP that you use. So even though his production during the fantasy playoffs was disappointing, he still was fantastic. He was a great value in the middle rounds. How did Adam Thielen happen? Yeah, I was looking at him, uh, researching for today's podcast, just looking at his workload last year and comparing it to this year. And it's it really comes down to targets and market share in this offense. He averaged 5.8 targets per game last year, 8.9 targets per game this year. I think this four, you know, it's a 4.1 target jump, uh, you know, 80% increase over last year. Very unexpected. I was expecting more like seven, seven and a half, maybe. 8.9 was extremely heavy. He had 11 games with eight plus targets uh, last year after four plus, I'm sorry, eight, 11 games with eight plus targets in 2017 after four games uh, like that in 2016. Uh, he accounted for 27% of the team's pass attempts in 2017 after accounting for just 15.6 of the pass attempts targets. Uh, in 2016. So it's a huge jump in market share, nearly doubling. Uh, and that's what resulted in this uh, jump in his fantasy production. Uh, and, and the Vikings actually threw the ball less in 2017 than they did in 2016. So it wasn't like the offense took a big leap forward. The passing attack took a big leap leap forward uh, in 2017. Uh, the, the yards per attempt jumped a bit to 7.5 from 7.0 the previous year. uh, So it was a little bit more efficient. Um, But as a whole, the passing game, uh, you know, was less heavy in terms of their offensive share. So uh, Thielen, I think is going to be a good pick next year. He'll be a value because he had a late season swoon. Uh, People are going to still start, you know, want to take digs over him. Uh, He's going in the late fifth round and early 2018 PPR drafts. I think if he remains there, he's going to be a Larry Fitzgerald type value in that, in that fifth round, Uh, you know, finishing in the top 10, uh, is pretty telling. They're going to have the quarterback change, probably. We'll see. I mean, Case Keenum uh, could be back, I guess, but they've got Teddy Bridgewater there. It's going to be interesting to see what they do there. That's going to throw things up a little bit. We got to look at their market shares of these type of different types of quarterbacks in the uh, under center. Um, but I think he's going to be a nice value in the middle rounds in 2018. Let's talk about Marvin Jones now. Jones finished wide receiver as wide receiver 11 in PPR and wide receiver five in standard after being the 40th to 44th receiver off the board. What led to his productive year? Well, I think his ADP was a little depressed thanks to Kenny Galladay because he had a good preseason. Uh, he, you know, he had obviously the big week one. Uh, ultimately, the rookie was a non-factor as Jones' targets held pretty steady. He had uh, 30.6% of the team's air uh, 36.6% share of the team's air yards in 2016 versus uh, 34.0% uh, of the of the air yards in 2017. So a little bit of a jump there. And then his catch percentage jumped from 62% to 60, almost 69%. And he more than doubled his touchdown catches from four to nine. I think this was like one of these regression, uh, positive regression. Uh, people hate it when I say that. Uh, positive <laughs> regression. Uh Progressing to the mean, uh, positive regression there from four to nine touchdowns, given the the, the, the air yards that he saw last year uh, versus this year, getting the nine touchdowns was sort of back to a normalcy for him. And this just all adds up to a big jump in his fantasy finish. And he was one of these guys, Jones, you know, Jones we remember talking about him on the podcast uh, when he was with the Bengals and we liked this move over to the Lions. And, uh, you know, he was pretty good 
2016 at the start of the year, but then kind of faded. And he was still seeing the air yards, and that sort of indicated this would be a good season for him. I think the Galladay uh, draft pick and the buzz surrounding him in the, in the preseason sort of uh, su- uh, suppressed Jones's uh, fantasy stock, and he ended up being a really nice value. Uh, you know, in the as the 40th to 44th uh, receiver off the board. And then let's talk about one surprise tight end at the position. I, I I'm interested in your thoughts here because John, you've you've been steadfast and you've been proven right over the years that drafting fantasy tight ends, uh, drafting rookie fantasy tight ends usually is not successful. Uh, he finishes the tight end five after being drafted tw- uh, tight end 21. He posted 64 catches for seven, 722 yards and six touchdowns. Again, normally we stay away from rookie tight ends, but Ingram completely bucked that trend. So how did he do it? Yeah, this is, we talked about this, preached this on the pod. Don't draft rookie, rookie, uh, rookie tight ends. Um, they're going to disappoint you. This was a, a case where uh, he uh, is the exception that proved the role, maybe. David Njoku, O.J. Howard, uh, they both had their moments this year, but they both finished outside the top 20. Uh, so the other two rookies that we thought were going to have big roles, they did have big roles, but uh, from a fantasy standpoint, it didn't matter. They weren't they weren't in the top 15, top 20. Uh, Engram, however, did buck the trend, and how did he do it? He was... You know, looking at back at him and looking at his off season, you know, six foot three, two hundred forty pounds. He's built more like a wide receiver. We we thought he would come in and be the move tight end, and, and and if that's the case, if we know that, then maybe he should be treated more like a rookie receiver as opposed to a rookie tight end. But then there were some weird stories about him, where offensive coordinator Mike Sullivan said that that said that Engram, if you remember, would would be taught to play as a traditional tight end, so they wanted to have him playing with his hand in the dirt. Uh, and learn how to play tight end that way. And that really kind of threw me for a loop. Uh, that was early in the offseason. And then later in May, uh, Ingram was re- you know reportedly lining up everywhere on the field, uh, all over in the slot, outside wide. He was you know in fullback, uh, H-back, that kind of stuff. Uh, so it, it became clear or clearer that he was going to be a part of the passing game and, and more of a weapon for them as opposed to just a tight end that they drafted filling that role. And then, you know, they lost Odell Beckham after four games. They lost Brandon Marshall. That, that raised Ingram's ceiling in that offense. I mean, they, I don't think if he, if he, if they have Beckham and they have Marshall uh, the entire year, I don't think Ingram f- finishes in the top five and maybe not the top 10 uh, just because the, the targets, you know, weren't going to be there. Um, but that ceiling was raised and then he actually re- reached that ceiling, you know, finishing where he did. He was second to Travis Kelsey in targets at his position, uh, 115, second most amongst tight ends. Uh, he averaged 7.8 targets in 11 games with no Odell Beckham, 7.3 targets in four games with Odell. Uh, but his yards and touchdowns increased significantly when when Odell was out. I mean, he was getting more looks in the red zone, uh, certainly with, with Beckham out. Uh, currently going tight end 12th uh, in early 2018 drafts, and I think that's a little bit low. I would... I don't think he's going to finish in the top five again with Beckham back. Um, but I'd, I'd take him over Jordan Reed, who I'm never going to draft again. <laughs> Tyler, uh, Tyler Eifert, I'm not going to draft him. Uh, so I would definitely take Engram over those guys. I think he should be a top 10 pick heading into 2018. Um, I second that with Jordan Reed. I This is the first year I jumped in on Jordan Reed. He was there in all his shiny glory when there weren't a lot of other great options on the board. And I said, you know what, instead of doing the smart thing, 
by taking some more depth at the running back spot or the wide receiver spot or even go out and get my quarterback, I decided this is going to be the year that I take Jordan Reed. And um, I think I had three three teams this this year, three leagues. I made the playoffs in every year, but every every league but one. And I think you can figure out that one. <laughs> now it's not all hashtag, Jordan. Hashtag, it's not all Jordan Reed's fault, but yeah. I'm going to blame him. Hashtag uh, backfire. That was a big, yeah, big time exactly. backfire. Yeah. Uh, John, always great to work with you. Had a lot of fun throughout the course of the year. I hope you, as listeners, also got a lot of great information and that you follow John's rankings at 444.com throughout the course of the year. Again, we we had a lot of fun and, and good luck to, if you are playing some DFS or you're in playoff fantasy leagues. I know that that uh, that has become. Uh, a fun thing over the last couple of years now that's 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 booming and that does do it for our 2017 season wrap up we may be back periodically in the off season if there's something important to discuss and we'll definitely be back to discuss the fantasy impact of free agency and the 2018 NFL draft in March and late April one last time for the 2017 fantasy season for John Paulson I'm Anthony Stalter we'll see you next time on the most accurate podcast <laughs>